6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, an introduction and chapter 1, part 1. Peter's residence in Rome has been disputed, but not on sufficient grounds. 1 Peter was certainly written from Rome. 1 Peter 5 will deal with that. That book, 1 Peter, uh, shows signs of being written just before or during Nero's persecution. And a letter by 1 Clement 5 implies that, like Paul, he died in this outburst, but we don't know that for sure. There is an allusion in chapter 5 of the church at Babylon, and some people uh, feel that was a code name for Rome. Not so. Babylon uh, had a large Jewish constituency there. That's where the Babylonian Talmud was uh, was penned itself. And it's the it's of the Talmudic documents. It's the authoritative one out of Babylon, not Rome. It's not a code name for Rome. It's Babylon. And uh, anyway, there's a story in a document called the Acts of Peter. That's a spurious uh, pseudonym thing. Um, of his, uh, his martyrdom by crucifixion, head uh, upside down. That. Uh, cannot be accepted as a reliable document, but it is possible it may have pre be preserving some valid traditions, but scholars are, are divided on that issue. The earliest statement about the origin of the Gospel of Mark is by Papias as the interpreter Peter. This is recorded by Eusebius and also Irenaeus. What I'm getting at is here, the Gospel of Mark, the second Gospel of the Four, is widely regarded by competent scholars as to be uh, the, really the words of Peter, that Mark was like his secretary. Mark was not a direct observer of Christ. He's very young at the beginning, but he does. he's very active in the subsequent ministry. And uh, he, there's lots of evidence that Mark was his amanuensis. He recorded for him. Very likely... The Gospel of Mark, where Mark's attempts to put in writing all that he learned traveling with Peter. So in a sense, it's regarded as Peter's Gospel. Okay. It's Mark's hand, but Peter's voice is one way to look at that. Okay. The nature of the incidents, the choice of the events, the matter that they're treated, all suggest that it's Peter's position that's being presented by young Mark. Well, okay, we've got the first Peter letter in front of us. has three major divisions. Christian suffering and conduct in light of full salvation is the first couple of chapters. The believer's life in light of a sevenfold position. I won't get into the sevenfold position here, but we'll look at that as we get to chapter, into chapter 2 and 3 and 4. There's seven, we have seven positions in Christ, and each one has an impact on our lives. And then finally, chapter 5, we'll wrap up Christian service in the light of the coming of our chief shepherd. And the second letter of uh, Peter will be especially precious in view of our eschatological perspectives. Okay, so let's jump in and pick up some of this before we lose our hour here. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a bold statement of apostolic authority. It's supported both by internal evidence in the text and also by its early and universal acceptance as part of the canon of Scripture. There are many other documents in the New Testament that have some arguments about them. There are very few about this epistle. It's pretty clearly Peter's, a lot of evidence that we don't have to beat that one to death. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now those are Gentile regions, but to whom is this letter written? Okay. In accordance with the Lord's instructions, Peter seeks to feed the scattered sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he was charged to do. And his primary focus is to the scattered sheep of the house of Israel. Those are Jews in the diaspora. These areas that are listed here are areas that we, we consider here north of the place called Palestine and Syria and south of the Black Sea, the region you and I know as Turkey primarily. Asia Minor is a Roman provincial designation for a piece of geography that today bears the name pretty much of, of uh, is what we call Turkey. Scattered the, to the strangers, scattered throughout Pontus. The word scattered in the Greek is diasporas. It has a special meaning to the Jewish Christians in those churches. The diaspora referred to Jews who were separated from their homeland. And this is a term used here well in advance of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's still forthcoming. Because uh, uh, James is still alive. He gets killed in 62. So this is in the first, you know, couple of decades of, of, of the church history here. Continuing verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace, and be multiplied. Now, if we were making a career of, of this, we could spend hours on this verse because each one of these phrases is a springboard to very, very profound theological issues. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we've had some background in that. Already, I'll touch on it here in a minute, but we will also be dealing with it further as we get later in this chapter and in the subsequent chapters. The concept of election in both the Old Testament and New Testament, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, elect, election, choose, chosen are essentially synonymous. To choose of either divine or human choices, those same terms are used. But we are encountering here a paradigm of divine volition, God's own will. Why? Because he, first of all, has foreknowledge. From that foreknowledge, he can do an election, and that election will result in a predestination. Uh, foreknowledge determines election, in other words. Predestination brings to pass the election, and election looks back to foreknowledge. In other words... That which is elected is taking advantage of God's foreknowledge. But that, that election, um, uh, it brings to pass the predestination. And all of that, of course, looks forward to destiny. Those are the Greek terms. 
It's actually not a problem when you look at, when you realize that you're dealing here with, by the acts of someone who's outside the constraints of time and happens in eternity. So he knows in advance what's going to happen. So that foreknowledge allows him to elect, which causes it predestined destiny to take place. So that should take the mystery out of those terms. But there are some formidable issues that emerge there that we've talked about in the past. There's corporate election, Israel was chosen, and the church. Do you realize there's no other nation on the planet Earth that was chosen? You can list all the nations on the planet Earth, 70 of them as listed in, in, the, in the, the table of nations of Genesis 11. Only one, that was, only one chosen by God was Israel. The other corporate designation is the church. Elements, of course, from the other 70 nations. There's also divine election in the individual sense. According to the foreknowledge of God, as, as mentioned here in the verse we just looked at, holy of grace, not of human merit, Romans 9 and 11, hammer away on that, whereby certain are chosen for himself, John 15 and other passages. And some people are chosen for very specific, distinctive service. Peter was chosen to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. Continuing, uh, uh, through the sanctification of the Spirit. Wow, we could talk a lot about that. Let's keep it simple. Let's talk about the paradigm of salvation. Just briefly, this is by review for most of you. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. You can say that simultaneously. Earl Rademacher likes to mention all three to confuse people. And what is he talking about? The past tense of, uh, of salvation that we call justification. That's a gift of God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ did it all. All you have to do is just receive it. The present tense of salvation, that's past tense. Present tense of salvation is sanctification. That's a work in progress that involves the faith and the works of the believer. Each one of us in this room, in the sound of my voice, are works in progress. He is not finished with any of us. And yet, there is a future tense of salvation, which typically we call glorification, and that's the result of the previous aspects. All believers will be glorified, resurrected, and given a body like Christ, but some will have more glory, more reward, that is, than others. That's what Romans 8 nails down, this, the certainty of your glorification. And that's what the book, whole book of Hebrews deals with. So we have three tense, past tense justification, present tense sanctification. That's why in the, within the Institute we discourage the use of the term salvation because it can mean many different things to different people. Specifically, if possible, you say justification, sanctification, glorification, and you'll eliminate a lot of confusion. Past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. Jesus did it all. We call it justification. Present tense, separation from the power of sin. If you're not a believer, you're under the bondage of sin. If you're a believer, you have the power to be free of that sin if you'll take advantage of it. That's called separation from the power of sin and sanctification. And that's a, we're, we're in a work in progress as we begin to understand and apply the tools that God has given us as believers. The future tense, separation from the very presence of sin. We call that, call that glorification. Penalty, power, presence. Past, present, and future. All three of these terms, justification, sanctification, glorification, are simply tenses, 
past, present, and future, of the word, the collective term we call salvation. Okay, justification is for us, sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous, sanctification makes the sinner righteous. When you accept Christ, you are declared justified. You haven't changed yet, but you're innocent before the bar of justice as far as God's concerned. Sanctification is the process that changes you. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin in your life. That's what it's all about. Well, continuing then, unto the obedience. Oh boy, there's that term. And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Word obedience, hupakoi, to hear, uh, to, to hear under, to hearken. It's man's responsibility to be submissive to God's word. Who's in control? God is. We need to remember that. The sprinkling of blood of Jesus. One living in obedience is constantly being cleansed with Christ's blood and is thus set apart from the world. Sprinkling of blood of Christ. That's the, what's implied in this. And all these things will be amplified later, so I don't you know, spend too much time on it in this stage. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again. Ooh, there's an interesting phrase. Born again. I thought that came out of John 3. Well, it comes out of a lot of places, but it has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us a new birth. You didn't do anything to get it. He gave it to you if you'll accept it. People can do nothing to merit such a gift. It is a gift, not, not an earning. Now, the, 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 the words that translate that from the verb beget again or cause to be born again, it's used twice in the New Testament, both times in this very chapter of Peter's. Has begotten us again into a lively hope. Easy word, but very pregnant with meaning here. The lively hope is based on a living, resurrected Christ. You're going to discover Peter is continually uh, obsessed with the resurrection life, the resurrection power that's available to the believer. The lively hope is based on the living, resurrected Christ, and it's going to be amplified when you get to verse 21 of this same chapter. He used the word living, Peter used the word living six times in this letter. It's a hope that's alive. And here the living emphasizes the believer's hope is sure, it's certain, it's real, as opposed to the deceptive, empty, or false hope of the world offers. Very different, very real, very tangible to the extent that it's expressed in our joy. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. To an inheritance, ah, that's a different kind of thing here. The sure hope is of a future inheritance, claronomia. The same word is used in the Septuagint to refer to Israel's promised possession of the land. Did Israel inherit the land? Only by taking it. Same thing with inheritance. And we're going to talk much more about that as we get into this further. See, the, Israel's possession of the land was their possession granted to her as a gift from God. The inheritance, in that sense, is a gift too. But it won't have any meaning unless you, take, you accept it faithfully. What's your most precious possession? 
Interesting question. I should have you fill in the paper on that. What's your most precious possession and why? And more importantly, what have you done with it? What are you doing with your precious possession? But now Peter does a strange thing with three words here. He takes three words, each beginning with the same letter and ending with the same syllable to describe a cumulative fashion this, this inheritance, is, the, the permanence of this. Incorruptible, it can never perish is what it means, apathartos. Undefiled, that's amiatos, unspoiled in other words. And that fadeth not away, that's amaratos. In each case, it's a TOS kind of sound that closes the word to give it a, a phonetic connectivity here. Can never perish, never spoil, never fade is what he's saying. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's interesting how Peter, the, the craftsmanship that shows up here, I think that's interesting. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. How are these things kept? The word kept there is not only guarded, but heirs who have been born into that inheritance are shielded by God's power. Purero is the root word here. It's a military term to guard, protect by a military guard is the thought here. And uh, we kept by the power of God through faith and his salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. The final step or ultimate completion of the salvation of our souls that he's going to talk about in verse 9 of the series will come when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's a clause that Peter uses twice again after this. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Are we in heaviness for manifold temptation? I think so. We might use those words in our vocabulary, but we're facing heavy times. And yet we, should, we are to greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, and so on. Wherein do ye greatly rejoice? Wherein? He's linking this to the truths that were mentioned in the previous three verses. Because of those three verses, you greatly rejoice. Knowledge alone cannot produce the great joy of experiential security and freedom from fear in the face of persecution. It's important you not only to know what you have, you need to rejoice in it, you need to express it. That's, that's, that should be the uh, result of your faith, is to greatly rejoice. God's omnipotent sovereignty needs to be coupled with human responsibility, is the point. It's a courtship. Faith makes theological security experiential. You shouldn't just know these things. You should be experiencing them. The joy should come forth. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, like gold is, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Tried by fire. That's a, the Greek term there, is a, it means to test for purposes of approving. That's what you do with gold. You, you melt it to get it pure. That's exactly what happens to your felt. It, it puts under stress to purify it. The dokuminion is trial in verse 7 and also in James 1.3. And dokuminion is a, to test in James 1.3. These are related terms, obviously. 
that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is glorified by your faithfulness. You have an opportunity to glorify Jesus Christ. How? By being faithful and allowing that faith to be tested by trials. These trials then yield two results. They refine or purify one's faith, much as gold is refined by fire when dross is removed. I assume you're familiar with that process. Trials also prove the reality of one's faith. Stress deepens and strengthens the Christian faith and lets its reality be displayed. People are watching. People observe more than you realize. Your faithfulness is your way to magnify the name of the Messiah. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Wow! Whom having not seen, ye love. It's all about Jesus. It's all about loving him. And having not seen, ye love. In whom, though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Those are Wild words. The climax of the joy that results from faith. The focus of a believer's faith is not on abstract knowledge, but on the person of Christ. By all of us, I think, have read books or encountered people who are articulate, eloquent. They have soaring words, profound expressions. That's all sounds good, but it doesn't rattle when you shake it. We've also seen people you can just tell, have experienced the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Remember the letter to the Ephesians in, in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the first of the seven letters. Boy, they were sharp. They'd done their homework. They, they tried the apostles and said they were and were not and found them liars. Boy, they were sharp. They knew their theology. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, he says. They're so busy on the business of the king, they had no time for the king. You lost your first love. It's about loving Christ. It's about loving Christ. Not memorizing Bible verses, etc. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Receiving out of all of this the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Receiving the end. You and I can rejoice because we are receiving. That's present tense, continuing. It's not a past tense thing. It's not a forward hope. No, no, it's a present tense experience. To receive as a reward. We have that today. What was promised? What was promised? Salvation, the goal, which is the goal or telos, the end of your faith. For those who love and believe in Jesus Christ, salvation is past. He's given us a new birth. A justification. Present through faith, you're shielded by God's power. That's an expression of sanctification. And the future is their inheritance of glorification, which will be revealed in the last time. The goal of your faith. The past tense was in verse 3, the present tense in verse 5, the future in 4, 5, and 9 is the goal. So the structure is latent in those six verses we just reviewed. But that's about as far as we'll have time for in this initial session. Chapter 1 is a longer session, so we do well to 
Uh, we'll review this slightly when next session, but then wrap up chapter 1 in the next session. So I encourage you for your next session, study carefully chapter 1. And use what study time you have between now and the next session to review at your own leisure your favorite episodes about Peter. Walking on the water with Christ. As you go through your Gospels, you flip through those, you'll find uh, each one of us will discover a favorite episode where he has to pay taxes by finding a coin and a fish or whatever. Colorful, colorful stories. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for his colorful anecdotes. We, 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 we just can't help but smile at his, enthu his enthusiasm. We, we identify with his fumblings. We recognize that we too run the risk of failing in our strongest suit. We recognize that his strongest suit was his boldness, and yet it was the lack of boldness that caused him to deny Christ. Oh, what a sobering lessons are in his life. Because we all are Simons on the one hand and aspire to be Peter on the other. Father, we just thank you for his example. We thank you for your words that are here enshrined in, this, in the Scriptures. We do pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and lives to what you would have of us, that we too might apprehend that unique mandate you have for each of us as we go forth. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that is here in celebrated. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you bring before us as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.